today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Coming up on today's show, Omar Cotter now wants to go visit his sister in Saudi Arabia. Have we done too much for this person already? Also, China. They've taken two of ours when we've released one of theirs on bail. How does that happen? And UK Prime Minister Theresa May lives on as she passes a non-confidence vote. But where does that leave Brexit? It's all coming up. Interesting news that has come out uh, in regard to Omar Khadr. Lawyers for the Guantanamo Bay de- uh, detainee are scheduled to appear in court today in Edmonton. Uh, while he faces uh, war crimes convictions, appeal for the war, uh, war crime cons- convictions by a U.S. military commi- uh, commission. He's now 33. He's seeking a Canadian passport because he wants to travel, travel to Saudi Arabia and permission to speak uh, with his sister. Uh, the sister of was investigated in Canada more than a, a decade ago for helping the terrorist network, but was never charged uh, at that time. To talk more about all of this, Ari Goldkind is wa- with us, Toronto defense lawyer, and on the line now. Ari, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Always good to be on with you, Scott. How concerned should Canadians be about this? Is is does is does this smell? Does this does this does this have legs? Uh, it has both. It has legs. And it has another body part that absolutely makes it stink. And if you're a Canadian, Scott, you should be very, very concerned, in my view, about the endless, limitless generosity. Generosity, And by generosity, I'm sure your listeners remember the $10.5 million payout to Mr. Cotter for his troubles. So if you think he was a forced, compelled child soldier, that's your view. If you have a different view of it, and if you go into the history of Mr. Cotter, his family, his personal views of 9-11, his sister, what he was doing on that day and the role of his father, we should be very concerned that this country has been more generous, warm, and open-hearted to him than we are to almost any homeless or mentally ill person Hmm. I've ever come across. So, yes, he's got legs. Yes, I do think a judge may grant him some of these extended bail conditions because the courts operate in somewhat interesting ways. But the judgment I would like to see is that it costs him $10.5 million for his passport. It's one way, and that's the end of it. What do we know about his sister, who he, he, I guess one of the main reasons he he wants to chat with her or at least be able to Skype with her or see her in person, what do we know about her? Well, let's make sure that we're clear. He is allowed to speak to his sister with one of his lawyers or a bail supervisor present. Because of the risk that she is, she is an Al-Qaeda sympathizer at best, worst at worst. She is somebody who thought 9-11 was just dandy and a lovely day in New York and throughout the world. She has views that our government will never call out, given certain subjects to use the baby it's cold outside intro are verboten for most normal, rational people to speak about. She is somebody who holds abhorrent views that do not align with anything Canadian. That being said, the process that he wants is to allow himself two things, to make the pilgrimage to the Hajj, which you're supposed to do once in your life. He says as a Muslim, he may be right. I don't pretend to get into that discussion. Why it has to be in this or the next year of his life, pending the appeal of the war crimes uh, findings, why it has to be now while on bail utterly escapes me. And he is seeking more permission to speak to his sister Zainab 
more freely without being babysat. That should really give Canadians pause. And by the way, about three to 30 cents a person pause, given that nice big check he got for his troubles. Uh, Considering how generous Canada has been to him, uh, why would he just not lie low? He must feel he has enough public social support to even attempt this. I will give you two parts to that answer. I don't think for a second he has remotely public support, except for maybe in certain segments or communities. I think the public's view of him is totally different than our fearless, or I would say fearful leader, Mr. Trudeau, who's never met an opportunity to not have types like Mr. Cotter in his office, Joshua Boyle in Mm. his office. He seems much more, much more concerned with attacks on mosques than he will ever be concerned with attacks on synagogues or Jewish people, or for that matter, churches. This is something that comes down from the top of our, again, democratically elected government. But I do think, Scott, with respect, there is a significant gap or gulf between the views of the public and their understanding of knowledge of what happened at Guantanamo and whether Canada truly has blood on its hands. Because what most people, Scott, have not done is looked into how we got here the last 10 years of his journey. And the idea that Canadians were on the hook for $10 million, I think, exhausts a lot of Canadians' patience, particularly, Scott, when a lot of your listeners, a lot of people you and I know, are in precarious work, they're unemployed, they're mentally ill, we know homeless people, housing is a huge issue, we have no money for anything, yet our taxes go up massively for all sorts of new people coming here. I think the average ordinary Canadian raises their eyebrow. So, uh, obviously our Prime Minister has a couple of international issues on his hands. Where is this going, or does it depend on how much hay the public makes out of this? I think the easy answer to this is that it's going to be in the courts for now, so that Mr. Trudeau sort of has washed his hands of it, and a judge, and again, anybody who thinks politics don't enter into the courtroom doesn't understand all sorts of things that enter the courtroom, whether it be movements or hashtags or uh, public sentiment. We've seen that time and time again. But, you know, you really would hope a judge would look at this in no different way, in a non-politically correct lens, simply a judicial lens, And, you know, from a judicial lens, you could see a judge relaxing his bail in full fairness to Mr. Cotter. He's complied. He's behaved. He's abided by the terms of his bail. You could see a judge relaxing it. But my question is, is let's say he's allowed to make that pilgrimage. I mean, are are the taxpayers paying uh, $100,000 for him to fly on an RCMP plane? Is there a security detail that makes sure he comes back that you and I are paying for? These are real things that I think should be talked about in a day and age where a lot of Canadians are having a lot of difficulties in their lives, but there just seems to be endless patience and generosity with Mr. Cotter or perhaps those who have thought like him. And by the way, that comes straight from his own mouth when you read interviews with him about what he thought of 9-11. Prime Minister says he paid him the $10 million to avoid a lawsuit and and, and, and more uh, costs being tied up and such. Do we owe this man anything else? I mean, is there anything he can come back and sue us for? Great question. I love that you asked. It wasn't expecting it. Here's the answer. It is, and I say this as a lawyer and as somebody whose nose is right in front of his face, the idea that some fights aren't worth having in a court is nonsense. Mr. Trudeau said, well, it would have cost us in lawyer fees. Well, wait a minute. These are salaried employees 
that are already paid a salary. It's not a private retainer like somebody hiring me. The idea that Canada wrote a check for $10.5 million while the U.S. hasn't, I can assure you, Mr. Trump's administration and Mr. Obama's administration, I don't believe has given him $10.5 million. This was the absolute wrong-headed move. And even if Mr. Trudeau received advice from his public prosecution service that he may lose in court and a judge may go one way. And by the way, Scott, you and your listeners know every decision is always appealed six times. The idea that this wasn't one worth fighting for on behalf of hard-working Canadians to not shell out that kind of money when it is not Canada's cross to bear about anything that did or did not happen at Guantanamo, well, I have a problem with that, and I think a lot of Canadians do as well. Hmm. Uh, the application filed by his lawyer says that the appeal through the United States, he's appealing the war crimes conviction by uh, the U.S. Military Commission, has been overly delayed, and uh, he has obeyed all the conditions of his release. Is that enough to get a judge's attention? No, because I think you're dealing... It, yes, it'll get the judge's attention. And look, a lot of judges might want to look like they're on the right side. I don't mean left or right political spectrum, but on the right side of this, which in Canada seems to be uh, throwing out more and more of the welcome mat for Mr. Cotter and those perhaps in his circumstances. So I could see a judge biting at the apple. I could see a different judge who doesn't care about anything that the public thinks, saying, well, wait a minute, I'm not interfering in a sovereign nation's uh, process. The War Crimes Tribunal, Mr. Cotter's confession, which he says was coerced or pressured. These are things that take time, and the idea that he needs to see his sister this year. Well, Scott, we just got past Thanksgiving and Christmas is coming up. There are a lot of people who don't speak to their brother and sister, not because they're suspected terrorists, but they said something offensive at the dinner table. I'm troubled by all the time and resources and effort that have been put into this young man who really, when you look at it, most people don't know the history, in and of himself has a very tenuous connection to Canada from the get-go. What does the Prime Minister have to gain by coddling Cotter? Why any of this? I mean, oh, well, you know, you can use use the excuse, as he said initially, with the $10 million, but, but why now? Uh, that's an easy answer. Changing demographics in our country. The Toronto Star just put out a very interesting article about the changing demographics of the greater Toronto area, which populations are increasing by unbelievable leaps and bounds, where those votes go. I mean, there are certain groups in Canada, Scott, that are uh, growing in leaps and bounds, and there are certain groups that are declining massively uh, demographically. We see that around the world. This is not a secret. This is study. This is scientific. These are very easy votes for Mr. Trudeau, and he seems to say that anybody who doesn't agree with him, uh, he uses terms like ambulance chaser or other words that are more pejorative, the immigration file, the end of the day, if half of his caucus were mic'd up about what they really think at their dinner table about Mr. Cotter, I think the answers would be very different than the virtue signaling nonsense we hmm. hear in the House of Commons. I can't let you go, Ari, without asking you your opinion on what has happened uh, with the Huawei CFO uh, going through bail proceedings and now released on bail while two Canadians are detained and we don't know anything or, uh, as far as their whereabouts or, or what's going on. Well, my answer, Scott, and I'll take this in a different way because I really thought and talked about this a lot in the last few days, is this. I think Canadians really should have their eyes more opened up to the power of China. And this woman, and she did get a properly 
uh, formed bail release. She should not have been held in custody. But she could skip her bail as easy as you and I could, uh, you know, uh, turn on our card today. China could pay all of the money that she promised with a bat of its eyelash. We really need to have the conversation about whether China is friend or foe in this world. If you look around the world at what China is doing, at what China is buying, and how much of Africa and the Caribbean and South America China has bought, sold, and paid for and run, we really need to have a bigger discussion in this, can, in this country about globalization, what it means for Canadians, and whether China's interests, particularly on the Huawei file, which really ties into Iran and snooping into our 5G networks, is this a friend or a foe? This is not a minor, trivial matter, Scott, but it's not as sexy, for example, as talking about Trump and all of his toilet tweeting. Uh, why uh, why is China putting the boots to Canada and not the United States? Why is China threatening the, uh, us and not the U.S. when it's, you know, this indictment, it's their charge? They're the ones going after her. I'll give you my gut answer, which is because we have a weakling and somebody who doesn't fight back in charge of our country. And China well knows, as much as Trump, in my view, full disclosure, is a buffoon and about as unpresidential as anybody I could come up with, they don't want to keep poking him because he has the guts and the courage of his convictions to fight back against China, whether it be tariffs, whether it be steel. That is one of the reasons why China is taking out its vengeance on Canada. All Canada did, just to be clear to people, is arrest this woman on the strength of a warrant. Canada is not prosecuting her. Canada is doing this on an Interpol or other related police warrant. For it's an international arrest. law issue. It's you, kinda, yeah. you, you absolutely got it. And China knows that, you know, there is no bear to be poked in Ottawa. This is somebody, and again, I think Mr. Trudeau does a lot right, so I don't want people to get me wrong. But this is somebody that on any controversial demographic immigration issue is more concerned with the socks that he's wearing and the right message than reflecting for one second the views of most reasonable Canadians. So it is very easy for China to do this because they will not get the kind of pushback they would get from Mr. Trump, who would probably send an aircraft carrier into the area if anybody that he liked in his administration was taken into custody in vengeance. Do they? Does China think we're going to side with them before the United States? I think China understands, and let's be clear. Canada and China have a very pleasant working relationship. I think demo, uh, diplomatically, China is very well aware that behind the scenes, China has a friend in Canada, and there will be some compromise, some discussion. Ms. Friedland will probably be on a plane sometime soon. And Canada is a country, and this is not necessarily a bad thing, of compromise. So there's nothing wrong if you're on China's side with China sort of putting their boots down. But look, you're going to arrest one of ours and make her fight for her freedom. We're going to send a message back over the bow because the idea, Scott, and it is an old-school, old-fashioned idea that the U.S. is the superpower of the world. I think China this day would laugh at that. Yeah, yeah but here's the where I have a problem with this, Ari, is that, you know, uh, the CFO went through all the legal channels, got bail. Uh, there was There was total transparency. Nothing was hidden. We don't even know where these people are. They've just literally kidnapped them off the street. And that is why, again, could you imagine the difference if, uh, look, again, let's use Trump and as a hypothetical example. If they kidnapped Kellyanne or Eric or Don Jr. 
you can rest assured Donald Trump would not be doing this quietly. You do this with two regular, meek, mild Canadian citizens. I would actually like to be wrong, and I'm content to be proven wrong one day, where Canada has sent in literally a cavalry into China to get these people out. Because if you look at the comments coming out of China about these people, they're actually very concerning comments. They actually make me more concerned in their veiled threats, their subtext, than anything else. And remember, this woman who was kept pending her bail hearing in Canada, you can rest assured, Scott, and this is important, you can rest assured she wasn't beaten, she wasn't starved, she wasn't tortured. I have no confidence that the people that were taken that are now in China aren't suffering some kind of very difficult existence until hopefully they are released. That's because they're being held in secret and nobody knows any information on them. Ari Goldkind, Toronto defense lawyer, thank you so much for the time as always. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. China has admitted they have detained two Canadians, but we don't know where the heck they are. We don't know what the conditions are like. We don't know anything. So how is that equal to what the CFO at Huawei has just gone through with a transparent uh, hearing and, and, and out on bail and such? So they just pluck people off the street? How is that the same? And does it make you feel more comfortable about buying Huawei? I'm not sure they're helping the cause here. My next question is, why are they not threatening the United States? It's their legal proceeding. It's their process. It's their procedure. We're just extraditing like every other ally country does. So why are they not taking it up with the United States instead of Canada? Why are they threatening us? The people that have welcomed them. It's very bizarre. Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer, is with us, correspondent with Global News. He's based in Washington and is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. So give us an update on this and what we know about the Canadians that are being held in China. We now at least have confirmation that a second has been detained, correct? Yeah, that that is true. And uh, outside of that, we don't actually know very much. We don't know if they've had any conversations with lawyers. The, the, uh, the embassy and consulates throughout Beijing are being very cagey about how things are going on. You have to remember that the reason that these two people were brought in was this, quote, suspicion of engaging in activities that endanger national security. What that is in Chinese law is is a kind of an umbrella thing. It's a big, broad term. And endangering state security could be anything from saying something negative about the Communist Party that rules it. It could be talking about a potential independence for Tibet or an independence for Taiwan. So there's any number of possibilities that China could be using to to, to keep these Canadians uh, kind of in, in a dark cell, uh, incommunicado for X number of days, weeks, or months. So that's what the Canadian government is going to be working for right now, is to get conversation, to get some kind of uh, idea as to what the state issues are that China's trying to hold them for and then to have these conversations with the u.s saying look this was your extradition order that we carried out we now need to work together are are we uh, are we still debating uh whether uh these charges and uh, in, in, in canada's role in this uh, are we still debating whether that was the right one or the wrong one i mean there wasn't choice here was there oh well no and i mean to, to, to make an arrest in a foreign country on behalf of america it goes through a number of steps this wasn't something that just would have popped up out of the middle of nowhere this would have gone through a number of levels inside the justice department in washington it would have crossed the border it would have gone through justice officials in ottawa communicate would have gone back and forth for the arrest to happen in Vancouver, and the extradition process is going to take even more steps. This is more conversations that need to be had between officials on both sides, but then 
again, this is something that America requested Canada do. Canada has now kind of been caught up in this back and forth volley between the U.S. and China over this arrest. So it's going to be a conversation with Canadian officials to say, look, we're the ones who are feeling the effect of this arrest right now. You need to do something about this and pointing a direct eye towards Washington. Why is China not threatening the United States since they initiated all of this? Why are they threatening Canadians but not uh, Americans? Well, we don't know that they're not threatening America right now. We know that they've detained these Canadians simply because it's been out in the public that Canada is the one that carried out this arrest. Canada is the one who put this person through uh, through through a judicial system and and has now released them on bail. Uh, China, on the other hand, has numerous kind of ways that they can actually go after America. Whether it's uh, you know a, um, a national backlash where they could potentially start boycotting American companies that have set up throughout uh, China, maybe you know boycotting something like Apple to try and get Huawei uh, a bigger share there. They could do things like cyber attacks on the U.S. There could be uh, uh, potential risks to more computer activities. There could be any number of possibilities that America go- is uh, is victim to China as they try to deal with this. So that's what we'll see going forward. Whether or not they want to detain Americans is one thing. It's what they could do where nobody can actually see that they're threatening the U.S. That being said, they why would they do that without making that public? It's the public display that, of course, you know, gets them the leverage here. So we haven't heard of them doing anything like this to the United States at this point, have we? It's just been with Canadians. It's just been with Canadians right now, and they they may not be public with things at the United States, because you have to remember there's a very big trade war going on between the two countries. The president did what he could to try and get uh, trade agreements signed when he was meeting with uh, Xi Jinping not long ago. So to try and put this in public could make Donald Trump say something like, well, look, we're going to take away any trade uh, deals that we had. We're going to increase tariffs. We could put your economy into kind of a bind more so than it already is. So China's trying to, you know, tread a careful line here by trying to appease America when it comes to the economic side of this while also trying to put their foot down by saying, look, this isn't going to be acceptable what you did with this arrest. What do they think or what do they expect Canada to do to just forget about the Huawei scenario and say, okay, never mind, you know, we'll just forget it ever happened. Do they think we're going to side with China before the United States of America? Well, I don't think anybody thinks that, but I think that these are the conversations that are, are kind of running rampantly right now between Ottawa, Washington, and in towards Beijing, where all levels are now trying to look to say, we need to try to figure this out. We need to try and uh, uh, come to some kind of an agreement as to what we do. China just simply wants this arrest to go away, have somebody brought back to, uh, to back to their country and potentially call this all a truth. America, on the other hand, they're saying, look, no, this arrest had to be made. Uh, th- th- this, uh, this woman is linked to a company that's been dealing with Iran, and it's kind of going against sanctions right now. So that's why we made this arrest happen happen, there's a lot of levels that are trying to work out and say, look, we're right for what we did. It's just going to be interesting to see which one comes out on top at the end of this. You talked about going away. I mean, it sounds like obviously the threat from China is they're hoping that Canada just says to hell with the United States because it's big bad Trump and, and just and just say, OK, never mind and send her back on a plane. Is this going away? The CFO is obviously going to be here for a while if these charges unfold. Where does that leave this situation and not only these Canadians, but others that are there? Well, I mean, that's why there's this travel alert that's in place for Canadians in China right now saying, look, if you're going over there, uh, you need to be cautious. There have been businesses throughout China who have been dealing with consulates and, and organizations that are set up to kind of deal with foreign entities in China who are expressing concern, saying this could cause problems down the line. Look, Canada's not just going to let this go away. They're not just going to kind of put a blind eye to Washington and say, we're sending this person back. We're not dealing with you right now. But they also have to understand that President Trump has already said he may intervene with this uh, if he, if, if he uh, sees fit to, because again, he's putting uh, the economy on the line with trying to get into this battle with China. So Canada's really in a, in a precarious situation right now, whether or not they want to listen to China to get their people back or listen to America because they don't want to have to deal with another upset with the president. 
Uh, obviously, you, you commented about uh, the president saying that he may intervene. Do you think that he was aware of this? Because this, all this timing, especially with the CFO, was around the same time he was, you know, meeting and in, in, in signing deals with or trying to sign deals with China. Um, did, was he aware of this at all during that time? It's conflicting right now as to whether or not the president had either a strong idea or even an inkling of what was going on, because, again, this would have had to all come up through the Justice Department. And the president has kind of an awkward relationship with the DOJ right now based on everything that's been going on for the last year and a half. So whether or not he knew anything is one thing. But the president is very much a I'm going to say this right now and think about something else to say later. So if he did know about it, he played his cards right to get the trade thing going. Uh, If he didn't know about it, then people inside the Justice Department were doing what they could to make sure it didn't elevate into a different situation. Uh, he, he, he then came out and said that, as you mentioned, he may intervene, obviously making it sound as if this person is leverage and what that does to the Canadians, who knows. But what message does that send? Well, I mean, there have been lawmakers in the United States saying, look, the president has absolutely no business intervening in this. Uh, one of the Maryland uh, senators, Chris Van Hollen, he said not long ago, quote, you know, it's a dangerous road to go down if we get into a world where people are detained based on trade and tariff rather than on the law. And it would be kind of uh, a mistake, according to uh, Senator Marco Rubio, if the president had intervened, because this is unrelated to trade policy. This has things to do with, uh, you know, uh, going against sanctions that have been put in place by the U.S. on Iran. So uh, for the president, to intervene, lawmakers are being very cautious, saying, look, if you're doing this, you have to intervene for the proper reasons. You can't just intervene because it's getting in the way of your trade conversation. So there is some kind of quarrels going on in Washington with whatever the president is thinking that he might do. We know how much uh, China is interwoven in our life, in our economy now, um, more so in Canada than the United States, especially when it comes to, to companies like Huawei. What does this do for Huawei in North America? What about their public relations in all of this? Well, I mean, when you're looking at uh, something along the lines of the United States, there have always been, and there have been at least throughout this year as well, uh, a kind of a hesitancy towards Huawei getting into the U.S. market. They don't feel safe with it. They feel that it's a security threat. There was an opportunity, or at least there was conversations at Huawei and Google, uh, Google rather, were going to link up. And there were a number of people on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee that were trying to say, look, this is a bad idea. We can't let China get in here. We can't let uh, any kind of uh, ability for them to get into uh, networking in the United States be, uh, be a thing that happens. So Huawei's already having a difficult time south of the border. Whether or not that trickles into Canada is another thing to watch. And that's my next question. I mean, uh, will this change the Canadian perspective of Huawei? Obviously, we've given them the Chinese more latitude here than, than, than what the U.S. has. Will this change the Canadian perspective of Huawei and dealings with China considering they're scooping Canadians off the street? Well, I mean, it's not going to help situations right now. It's putting a strain on kind of, a, you know, an economic relationship between the two countries. It's going to be something that Ottawa is going to have to sit and think about and say, well, you know, if, if China is going to be, you know, treating Canadians like this and if China is going to kind of uh, uh, put their foot down on, on Canadian business or, or Canadian pr- uh, people, uh, maybe it's something that we need to kind of back away from and start looking elsewhere to do our big trade deals. At the end of the day, though, I mean, a couple of people, yes, they've, they've gone missing in China, but there's a massive trade uh, between the two countries. There's big trade between uh, China and the U.S., China and Canada. These are things that, that, that politicians really have to weigh because they don't want to put their country at risk by losing big sums of money. But on the other hand, they don't want to put their country at risk by their people going missing because of, uh, of a spat between a couple of countries. We all know that for the last decade, two decades, it's all about, the, you know, the, the Chinese golden goose. Everybody's got to expand to China. China is the emerging market. China is where all the money is going to be made. Have we been naive in this, chasing the money 
forgetting this is not the same sort of uh, country as perhaps our allies. Well, I mean, money and business are a fickle thing. I mean, they're the most important thing until you realize that something has gone wrong and then you try to kind of finagle and either get out of it or try to change things around. You know, China is still an important economy in the world. It's the biggest economy in the world. There is a lot of money that is uh, that stands to be made and stands to be kind of spread out along uh, along global lines here. So I don't really know. It's, it's uh, something to say that we're naive for thinking that this is the market to be in because it's where the money is, essentially. It's just a very secretive government. And then it's, it's, a, it's a place where people need to really put their, uh, their, their kind of pens on the paper to say, well, this is what we need to figure out if we're going into China. Here are the rules that we're going to need to listen to. And then you also have to think about, well, this is what might happen when we start dealing with these rules on Canadian soil and it could have an implication. So you got to go where the money is. You got to go where the business is. But you also have to realize there are um, complications that can come with that. So where do you think, the, or what's the buzz in Washington anyway, Reggie, about where this is going? Because the CFO isn't going anywhere soon. So do they just continue to, you know, to pluck Canadians out of China? Well, I mean, this is a potential that could happen. Chinese officials could continue to uh, to snag Canadians under these, you know, uh, uh, threats against the state that they're trying to say that, you know, that's what's going on. Uh, again, this is conversations that are going to have to happen within the Department of Justice, within Ottawa and over towards Beijing to figure out a way out of this. Because whether or not, uh, you know, this this gets re- uh, resolved now or a couple of weeks from now or, or unfortunately even months from now, this is going to play a big role in not only the release of a couple of Canadians in China, but how the economies of these three countries are going to be in intertwined. Do you think that uh, in the end this will work in Donald Trump's favor? Many have said nobody stands up to China. He seems to be doing that. Will this will this change public opinion? Well, I mean, it's possible. What Donald Trump does on a day-to-day basis kind of changes with however the wind direction is going. Yeah, but depends you know, on the topic. <laughs> yeah, the president has already said once before that he may intervene if he sees the need to be that. You know, there may eventually become a call from Ottawa that says, look, we need your help. We need you to intervene in this process. We're willing to let this go if we can just get our people back. It could be a, a blow, though, to the United States. Look, China's going to be playing this into their hand right now. We're either saying, look, we've got the president on strings and we're going to play it like we can, or we're going to try to play into to the economy of Canada and say, if you don't do this, we're going to you know, mess with you going forward. So uh, the president's got a lot of stuff to weigh on his shoulders as he tries to figure out whether or not he wants to get further involved than he already did by that one tweet. Uh, what happens if she is, 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 in fact, extradited to the United States? Because there's no reason to think that she won't be at this time legally. No, and there's a possibility that she will be, and she's going to face, uh, you know, some some serious scrutiny for these uh, uh, avoiding or for um, kind of going against these sanctions and dealing with Iran with uh, with Huawei and Iran. So that's that's what she could be facing down here. There's going to be a big congressional panel that'll have to look into that. There's going to be a big court case that'll look into that, and it's going to cause even more uh, rifts between the United States, China, and Canada because China could then retaliate and say, "Well, Canada, you just sent her down there. We could potentially put more of your people at risk." And then they now can look at the United States and. Say, Say, we told you not to do this. Here are all the things that we could do to you now that's going to make your life, you know, a, a little more difficult going forward. Wow. Lots to do down there, eh, Reggie? It never ends. <laughs> uh, I can't let you go without asking you about Michael Cohen and him being sentenced. What's the buzz around Washington in regard to that uh, and Donald Trump's response? Well, I mean, the president has been on a bit of a Twitter storm over the last couple of hours. The most recent one he sent out uh, simply said witch hunt. We now know that it is not a witch hunt. This is something that has led to uh, people being put behind bars. It has led to a number of indictments. It's led to a number of people pleading guilty. This investigation is legitimate and it is going to continue on. Michael Cohen facing 36 months in jail. That's a huge deal because 
that it's now the first person really in the Trump realm that's facing uh, a jail time. But it also means that he now has an even further ability to cooperate with prosecutors. Just because he's locked up doesn't mean that he's got tape on his mouth. So he could still talk to try and get his sentence possibly pulled back a bit. And this could cause uh, more problems for the president down the line where, you know, Michael Cohen could spill on things, you know, these dirty deeds that have been uh, kind of been talked about over the last couple of days. He could kind of explain more things on that. And this could lead to potential uh, indictments for the president, whether or not he's a sitting president or not. And you got to think with a House Democrat coming in or a House full of Democrats coming in, this is going to cause even more problems for the president with this investigation going forward. And and how long can he separate or how can he separate himself from a man who's now behind bars? That well, was I mean, his lawyer. It, this is this is going to be a difficult thing for the president because he had nothing but wonderful things to say about Michael Cohen up until the time Michael Cohen flipped on him. And the president said, well, look, I have nothing to do with him. Michael Cohen was a lawyer. He should have known everything. He should have known the legalities of things. So he'll try to step away. But this investigation is not going anywhere. If Michael Cohen talks, if somebody like Paul Manafort talks, if Maria Butina, who just pleaded guilty in court a couple of hours ago, if she continues to talk, these are people that had the president's interests in mind during the campaign and have recently decided that their futures are more important than the president's future, so he can distance himself all he wants. This investigation is going to be in his shadow at all times. Reggie Giacchini has been with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News based out of Washington. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, fascinating stuff. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. UK Prime Minister Theresa May has come forward saying that she won't let, uh, run in the next general election. Is that how she survived her non-confidence vote? Let's bring in Kurt Hubner, uh, Institute for European Studies, University of British Columbia, and is with us now. Kurt, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon, Scott. So, Kurt, the whole uh, we, we talked yesterday about how uh, there was the non-confidence vote and everybody was wondering whether she was uh, going to remain as leader of her party or not this well. Uh, you know, the day before she's out, uh, uh, you know, running around Europe trying to soften the deal a little bit and then all of a sudden has to come home and address this. Was her promise to not run in the next election, was that how she made it through the non-confidence vote? Yeah, man, she, she won a battle yesterday, no doubt about it. But the question is, would she lose, uh, would she also win the war? And I think so, she will lose the war on both levels. Uh, first of all, the price was pretty high. Uh, she had to declare that she will not run for the next election, the next election. I guess so. Will it only be in uh, 2021? Maybe it will come earlier. This means uh, she is already a kind of lame duck. And I think that her main job is now to find some way to uh, move forward her Brexit file. And on the other level, the other side, uh, is was, is it in any way helpful yesterday's decision that you got to about two-thirds of the support of her caucus in terms of uh, getting a better deal in Brussels? I think no. Uh, she's now trying hard, but you already declared today there will be not maybe the kind of result. There will be no legally binding result at all because the EU have made it pretty clear and it would be unwise from their side after all those many, many months of negotiations to untie this whole withdrawal agreement. The best thing that could happen for her would be some kind of cosmetic uh, changes in the so-called political declaration that is accompanying this agreement. But this is a not legally binding text. So uh, and this will not uh, come for any of her critics back in the party. So uh, not, not a lot has been won yesterday besides the fact that she's now for one year safe in her job. Uh, and that's basically the best and only outcome of the decision yesterday. So I guess what this now does is provide her with an exit date. 
she knows she's at least got one year, but that's pretty much it. Yeah, and, and it may be even older. I mean, I, you know, nobody knows exactly about the dynamics. We'll see now. Uh, Christmas break is coming. Then the next and last uh, date for bringing her Brexit uh, agreement in front of the parliament would be January 21st. But given the fact, uh, not given the fact, but uh, given the kind of assumption, put it this way, in a careful way, that there will be no kind of uh, fundamental changes happening until January 21st, besides those cosmetic kind of little texts that made the EU produce, uh, she will not get a majority in the parliament. So uh, then she will fail uh, on January 21st. And uh, what does this mean for her leadership? What does it mean for the whole Brexit thing? I, I guess so. The, and, and one of the, the, the ideas how she can escape this whole trap she is now in, maybe that she makes the argument, you know what? Uh, I have got the support of two-thirds of, of my caucus. Let's bring the whole thing in front of the people. So something she wanted to avoid it all the time. Maybe we are coming back to a second referendum. What it, what was the purpose of the non-confidence vote yesterday? I mean, what would that have proven either way? I mean, perhaps even if she had lost. I mean, would that have put the party in better standing with anyone in the UK? Not at all. I mean, uh, the, 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 the Tories are, pretty put it this way, they're in a mess. Mm. It's a totally divided party, even though it's unevenly divided, uh, as we can see uh, yesterday, but it's divided means they no longer have the authority really to speak uh, for the for the government is no longer speaking in the interest of the people and uh, so that's a kind of a huge problem yesterday's uh, vote has not changed but it only made it visible now we know that 117 of her caucus are no longer in support when it comes to brexit and no longer in support of her leadership so and that's a quite substantial number you know uh, one third uh, is uh, taking away uh, support of uh, for Theresa May. And uh, that's a kind of critical number. And, um, you know, and th- that creates the kind of uh, the, the situation that actually the UK at this moment is in, in the disarray. There is not a kind of political clear route how to move forward. And uh, that's uh, the, 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 the really very serious and also very sad outcome or state of affairs in the UK. Uh, so she's obviously delayed the Brexit vote. She knows she's not or wasn't going to win that. Is is trying to to get more wiggle room from the from the EU. Uh, they've said the deal is set in stone. That's it. Is, is there anything she can pull out of her hat that will make this vote go in her favor? I can't see this because when, if you look uh, very carefully, what is this, what is the conflict all about? Then it has a couple of items, but the main item is a so-called backstop. That's the question: how to deal right. with the situation uh, in Ireland, Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland. And uh, I think so. The, the kind of compromise, the text that is now in this restore agreement, that's really uh, the maximum the EU is willing to go and can go. Uh, the Republic of Ireland, the government made clear there's no way to change it, and the EU. In their own interest, they can't uh, make really kind of in a legal binding way. They can't move away from this text. But as long as this one is not uh, really in a legally binding way changed, the DUP and, and her own caucus made clear, then they are not supporting it. And I think so. This is nothing she will achieve over the weekend or even after the Christmas break, because uh, this is really in the interest of the European Union, really to make clear that. Uh, 
And now is the, with Brexit comes, the outer border is on the island, in, 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 in Ireland, and uh, they must uh, defend themselves against all kinds of uh, or, or possibilities, and that's the way the backstop has been uh, created. And uh, I don't think so there's any way to change it. But without this change, there is no support and no maturity for the deal Theresa uh, uh, May is uh, looking for. In this regard, you know, I'm she's a bit a desperate kind of person. Uh, I would say, you know, she tries to be a good servant of the of the country, and uh, she's very stubborn. But uh, this doesn't uh, change the fact that there is not a lot uh, that will really move her file forward. So uh, it sounds like January 21, there's a train wreck. True. I mean, that is uh, based on uh, on the kind of the, the, the schedule. That's the last day. It may have been ha- have, uh, happened earlier, the vote, but 21st of, of uh, January is the last day this whole thing can be brought in front of the parliament. If not, uh, there would be anyway a kind of not even managed kind of hard Brexit. If she fails, uh, you know, the, the thing may be they may, extend, they may be able to extend the kind of the period. This uh, depends a bit on the willingness of the European Union, but I guess, given the fact that any hard Brexit also has negative uh, implications for the EU, they may be willing to extend a bit. But the extension is not a solution. It's only giving it a bit more time uh, in order to manage a kind of uh, hard Brexit that may be in the cards. So it, it sounds as if the EU is not budging on any aspect of this. Um, this is up for this is internal UK politics that they have to figure out before anyone can move forward. Is that accurate? That's very accurate. I mean, again, I would be always very careful in when I read media and listen to them. It sounds a bit like the EU would be kind of punishing the UK. But uh, if you look carefully on it, and particularly on the backstop, then it's pretty clear the EU has also to make sure that it's a, a kind of keeps up the integrity of their own kind of institution. And the main institution this car is the customs union and the single market. And there is no way that they can compromise in any direction uh, Theresa May is looking for. Uh, looking for. So uh, there's no way that this will happen. And uh, in this regard, you know, there's really, they have to deal internally. The problem only is it's only not only kind of division of the uh, Tories. At the same time, we have to see uh, that the Labour Party is also in very kind yeah. of disarray when it comes to Brexit. Mm. Uh, Corbyn was never a kind of uh, a fan of it, and that kind of he has no plan. At least he has not presented any kind of plan, and his language is pretty, let us say, naive when it comes. Like if he would come to Brussels, there would be a better deal. Uh, I wouldn't expect this as long as he's not willing to accept all the kind of implications and he seems not to be willing to do that. So we see the party landscape in the UK is also in a kind of uh, in a bad uh, state. And all this reflects that his whole practicing has really uncovered a lot of kind of dysfunctional uh, structures, elements in the UK. So that being said, Kurt, where does that dysfunction lead? I mean, obviously the EU says this is the best deal you're going to get. The UK is fighting over that. This is either heading towards a referendum or election, is it not? I mean, what is the what can be the any other solution? Right. Uh, election may be not even a solution, but it may happen. But I think so from a very strategic point of view, the best thing would be indeed, but then it's a question how to phrase it, uh, to go to back, to bring it back to the people means a really second referendum. Uh, we would assume uh, now the level of information is a bit better than uh, two years ago or so. 
uh, even there's still a lot of misinformation there. But now that's a valid question, Kurt. Let me interrupt you there. So heading into a second referendum, how do we know we wouldn't end up in the same place? Is it because we've had or you've had one referendum, UK's had one referendum, they've tried it, they've seen how difficult it is, they've done the negotiations, they've done the hard negotiations, and now they have more information and are better qualified to vote on a referendum? Is, is that how this would be sold? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I think so. it depends a lot on the question, what will people be asked for? If you go back to the referendum 2016 and the day after uh, uh, June 16th, then we know the most Googled word uh, was, uh, what is the EU? You know, I think so. In the meantime, uh, the average wow. uh, British citizen knows a bit better what the EU is all about. And, uh, and, and we also see already now, I mean, it's also something we have to, to, to take into consideration. Already now, the costs of the Brexit referendum, even though the UK still is in the EU, the economic costs are extremely high. I mean, we are they're building up and piling up uh, billions of uh, British pound in losses. You know, and uh, compared to the benchmark when this thing would not have happened, uh, we all know about this. There are the studies from the Bank of England and and, and a lot of independent uh, studies all show the same direction. So people are feeling this already. The, 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 the income per capita, the real purchasing power uh, has decreased. So there, is, there, are, there are all those kind of issues. The fishery guys are thought so they would get all this kind of free access and, and they keep their fish all by themselves, but the fish don't care about that. <laughs> the NH, you know, the, the National Health Service thought they would get back uh, 350 bill, a million pounds in a week. This was the promise of the leavers. Has not happened. And, and, and. So I think so. Now we know a bit better. And this may inform, without creating this kind of fear, but maybe a better informed kind of public to make a rational decision. And if it's phrased properly, will you accept the withdrawal deal of uh, Theresa May? Or, and then the question is what the other thing is, saying the European Union or so, you know, then uh, the EU and everybody would have to accept it. But this is now, two years later, a much more informed uh, referendum than the one happened uh, in 2016. Uh, that being said, Kurt, if if we if they can't find any common ground now in the UK, how are they going to arrive at the question? That will will that be a huge debate as to what the question should be and how it should be worded? Oh, uh, sure thing. I, mean, I wouldn't know how to wouldn't be able to give them any advice, uh, but uh, sure thing. This would be the next kind of uh, big debate. Uh, how to phrase it exactly, really in order to arrange and to make possible that uh, people can speak in, 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 in clear words and have a clear kind of alternative on the table. Uh, this will lead, uh, need another kind of time, and that's therefore I mentioned uh, the next step may then be uh, asking the European Union for an extension of the, of the period uh, so they can reform back in prison in order to deal with the thing because you know, there's the one common interest both sides also the eu they want to avoid this really not managed hard brexit because this would really escalate economic costs on both sides sure more in the uk side but also mm. on the side of the european union and that's something everybody wants to avoid do you think there is as much support for brexit now as there was in the initial referendum I mean, it, it, there seemed that there was more than just the economy here. There was immigration issues and such. Um, it, 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 do you think this experience has changed citizens of the UK's minds in any way on all of this? 
I mean, there's a, there are a lot of polls out there, I mean, but they, in, they, they differ in many respects. They indicate uh, a, a slight uh, majority of the uh, uh, staying in the European Union, but it's a slight majority. It also tells us the learning processes are very uh, slow. You know, it's uh, obviously the kind of stubbornness and resilience of people who made up their mind time ago uh, is still there. It's very high. Uh, I guess it would a lot depends uh, uh, how to mobilize particularly younger voters. And uh, they, as we all know, a lot of them stayed back home in uh, 2016. They may now really become a kind of more forceful power. And uh, so, but I'm pretty sure what we don't will see is a very strong majority in staying in the European Union. You know, there's this long-standing kind of British, let us say, uh, questioning diverse and the value of this whole project at all, and uh, this will not change. Uh, but if there would be a kind of significant, uh, uh, stronger majority in staying in the European Union, then compared to the situation 2016, uh, this may already be a, a big step forward. But it's difficult to say. On that note, Kurt, could, could this all end up in another referendum, another uh, vote to stay in the EU and then a better EU than what uh, the UK wanted to abandon so many years ago. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm looking for the silver lining mm-hmm. here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing is pretty clear. I mean, sitting on the table is better than not sitting on the table. So the, 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 the withdrawal agreement currently would mean uh, the, the UK would stay in the customs union and, and so on, and, but they wouldn't be able to do their own trade policy, and so they would still have to accept a lot of uh, regulation uh, from the EU, but without uh, being on the table and influencing those kind of decisions. So that's not a good, not a good deal, particularly if you compare it as a, when you take as a benchmark the kind of call for more sovereignty, which was the call of 2016, there is less sovereignty now than ever before. So sitting on the, ta- the table would be much better for, for, for the UK. And I think so. Uh, there is now, uh, since 2016, a lot of things have changed. There is now, if, uh, the UK would have many more allies when it comes to movement of people, uh, one of the issues, and so on. So I think so, the EU would be more, much more than willing to compromise even more than they offered at a time, David Cameron. There was already a kind of a, a special pathway for the UK, and I think so the EU would be willing to offer something like this as soon as the Brexit thing would be off the table. Interesting. Uh, Kurt Hubner has been with us, Institute for European Studies. This isn't over yet, uh, University of British Columbia. Kurt, as always, thank you for your time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Bye now. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.